Hey there, folks. Dan Figella here with the Tech Emergence Podcast, where we bring you to the intersection of technology and psychology. And today we're honed in yet again on neuroscience. Today, particularly, we might say neurophilosophy. I'm lucky enough to have the professor of philosophy emerita at the uh, UCAL San Diego, um, Mrs. Patricia Smith Churchland, who's on the line with me now. She's author of the recent book, Touching a Nerve. And today we're going to delve into the intersection of morality and neuroscience. Patricia, how are you? I'm great, thank you. I am glad to have you here. Um, you know, you'd, you'd uh, Touching Nerves is a relatively new book. You'd written a more extensive uh, book on this topic, which I had heard of first, called Brain Trust. Um, give us a little bit of a background before we tee up the rest of the questions as to, you know, a summary if possible, as to how neuroscience does shed some light on our understanding of morals and moral values. Okay, I'm going to start in a way with uh, a little bit about what we know about the evolution of the brain. And one thing that's really quite fascinating is that with mammals, we see some behaviors that are completely different from reptilian behavior or from the behavior of other vertebrates. And the three things that really are very striking. One is parental care. The other is play especially play among the young. Mm. And the third thing is vocalization, especially vocalization with separation. Now, why did mammals have these things? And indeed, why are is the mammalian brain and the avian brain, I should say, um, so large relative to that of the reptiles? Why yeah. do we have this massive thing called cortex? And roughly speaking, the answer seems to be because at some point about 200 million years ago, warm-blooded animals appeared, warm-blooded reptiles probably. Now, that's great in many ways. You have an advantage because you can hunt at night when the sun is down. You can also move to colder climates and forage there. But the downside is that gram for gram, a warm-blooded animal has to eat 10 times as much Ouch. as its cold-blooded friends. And that puts a huge constraint. So it's as though Mother Nature said, well, hmm, if I'm going to have these warm-blooded things, they're going to have to be very good in their predation. They're going to have to be, uh, be good if they were smart. <laughs> so how do we make them smart? Well, I could tinker with the genome, but that takes a long time. Why don't we just have them born very immature? And then their brains can tune themselves up to the environment, whatever it happens to be. They can learn about the causal structure of the world, whether it's where they were born or whether they, it's where they moved to and so forth. But if you do that, if you make the brains very immature at birth, Mother Nature had a problem, and that was, how is it that you're going to take care of them until maturity? And the answer was, change the circuitry of the mother's brain so that she cares for them. And suddenly we have, in the evolution of species, something really very remarkable, and that is that the young are born very immature and the mother cares for them. And what was that circuitry that changed? Now, we know a little bit about it, but in all honesty, we have to say we don't know everything about it. But the basic changes involved this rather simple peptide, oxytocin, but perhaps even more importantly, it involved the endogenous opioids, uh, 
the, those opioids that you're that are very like things like morphine and heroin, but they are made by your own brain. Body, yep. And so the upshot of all this was that when the mother would have babies, uh, she wanted to care for them in the way she would normally care for herself. She would see to their safety and warmth and food just as she would her own. It's like they were an extension of herself. And exactly how that circuitry accomplished this is still a bit of a mystery, but clearly it was part of the story. Now, the way it works, very roughly speaking, is that the mother feels good. There is a release of the opioids when the babies are with her, when they are nursing and so forth. She feels pain and anxiety when she's separated from them. And likewise, they feel pain and anxiety and they squeal. So here's the emergence of vocalization. <laughs> uh, help me, help me, you know, return me to the nest. And, um, and so this is a very, very important part of the very beginnings of mammalian and bird sociality. Now, the, the other thing that I mentioned, of course, was play. And play is also uh, really a typically mammalian thing and mm. also an avian thing. And we know now, too, that in play, the endogenous opioids are released and that if the young play lots with each other, especially with their siblings and those to whom they are close, that there is an increase in the density of receptors for the opioids to bind to. So these things are all extremely important as part of sociality. So the way I think of it, and this is quite different from Jonathan Haidt, I think, the way I yeah. think of it is that um, that sociality came about in order to deal with this matter of energy uses, and sociality very naturally developed into morality because animals, mammals that is, like to be together, they like to do things together, they felt pain at separation, um, and so forth. Now that's a slightly simplified version, yes. of course, of the story, and I'm leaving out lots of details that we know, and many more details that we don't know. Um, but, what it, but what is novel about these developments in the last 10 or 15 years is that we can begin to see that pain and pleasure are critically parts of social behavior and that they in a certain way constitute the motivational platform uh, for learning conventions, norms, rules, uh, for abiding by rituals and so forth. And so it kind of led very naturally into what we call now morality. So roughly speaking, that's the relationship. Um, and and that would make a great movie. Yeah, go ahead. I know. I said that would make a great movie. I, I was watching and fast forward animals evolving and mothers relating to there. It was. It was. Uh, I, I was painting. I was painting the pictures in my head as you went through that. That. Uh, that fast forward version of, of evolution and morality. I, I, I enjoy it. So yeah, go ahead. Anyway, you were just taking well, us into rhythm. that's a cool thing. And, and you know, I, I keep sort of mentioning on the side about birds. And, uh, and, and many, many species of birds, of course, are the mates are long-term pair bonders yeah. and the males take as much 
care of the young as the females, and it's very much a family business. Um, and and it, it could be the case that what we see is an instance of convergent evolution, that is that uh, evolution stumbled on the same strategy for both birds and mammals, or it could be the case that we have a common ancestor about 150 or 200 million years ago. So that part of the story isn't known. I'm not going to say very much about birds, mainly because not quite as much is known, but it does seem that um, the same sort of intricate orchestra of neurochemicals, namely oxytocin, vasopressin, the opioids, dopamine, serotonin, these are all involved in the bird brain, and it seems like it's much the same way as in the brain of social mammals. Hmm. So now with that, with that as kind of a, a grounding as to where um, morality maybe has its its own roots. Um, how do we factor that into dealing with day-to-day -day moral considerations now? So I, I get a little bit of the picture here. Vocalization, play, uh, the relation of, of, of you know parents being deeply tied in a, in a, uh, a very literal, chemical, emotive way uh -huh. to their offspring. Um, how does this pan out and, and extend maybe into how we understand day-to-day -day ethical considerations. I mean, you might have a couple examples that could kind of shed some light, but I'm interested in, in how it does just that. It is a very good question, and that certainly is what one really gravitates toward in thinking about these things. Um, but I first should just say that there is quite a lot of variability amongst mammals in the degree of sociality, and we think that basically... Um, there can be small genetic changes in receptor density for this or that neurochemical um, and slight modifications of circuitry and so forth. So we know that, say, TT monkeys are extraordinarily social and marmosets are extraordinarily social. They are long-term pair bonders, the mates are, they yep. stay together for life. Uh, they, they are very distressed when separated. They just really like to hang out together, whereas, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, uh, black bears, not so much. Yeah, yeah, no, not quite um, as much. So, so we know that there is quite a lot of variability there, and so you think, well, what, what, you know, what were we like in our ancestral condition? And there, of course, we don't know very much except what we can glean from anthropological yep. data of hunter-gatherer or scavenging tribes. Um, but I think that what is clear is that um, practices such as cooperation, food sharing, mutual defense probably just kind of would naturally emerge. Uh, and it might also be that certain practices would change when the ecology changed. So that infanticide mm. might be fairly common it, when conditions were extremely severe and yeah. people were often on the edge of starvation. But those practices might be relaxed and modified when the climate changed and there was ample food. So there's bound to be a fairly close relationship um, to the ecological pressures. In our own time, of course, what we all recognize is that uh, in mammals, it's although we are very social and we sacrifice a certain amount one for another, 
the self-oriented values of, of wanting to do well for oneself did not disappear. So oh, no, those still very much exist. Oh, hang on. Just, oh, no, sorry. You got it. Don't I'll worry about it. That. Um, <laughs> hang on. Yeah, you can edit this out. <laughs> That's um, fine. Yeah, not I a problem. Yeah, okay. Not not a problem at all. I can okay. I can I can chip okay. that out of there. Yep. Okay, good. Sorry about that. That's cool. Um, and so we see this long period from about the time that agriculture started about ten years ago. Uh, sorry, ten thousand yep, yep, years ago. Yep. We see this long process of the emergence of social institutions for contracts between groups and when to give credit and when the barter must be accomplished, how to deal with um, severe social disruption within the group, how to modify competition within the group. And I think within our own time, we see that there are many institutions with this long, long historical shadow um, where those institutions, like our own criminal justice system, might need to be modified a bit or changed a bit, but uh, many of these institutions embody quite a lot of, of moral and social wisdom. So uh, I'm not sure that I can say that I can see a nice clean line yeah, between yeah. what we understand about the brain and particular dilemmas. But I think it actually helps a lot to understand that our moral values do not come from a supernatural source. Yeah. And that our moral values are also not just completely arbitrary, that they have something very deep to do with our own biology and with our own need to be social and to live together, to reap the benefits of social living, but at the same time not to be overwhelmed by some of the difficulties of, of social living. And it's not that there are nice, clean rules that emerge from this picture. No. It's that life is messy. And social life is particularly messy. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> we can have some small rules, like in America, you drive on the right. Yep. But, and, and those are not inconsequential. But as for sort of deep, pervasing moral rules that should abide and prevail for all humans under all conditions for all time, I think that's fantasy. I, I, I don't I, think I, there are such rules. I would agree. I would agree. You know, I mean, it harkens me to, uh, you know, I mean, to, to philosophy, to, you know, Nietzsche, break up, break up the old tables. I mean, that just, uh, I, I think, I think there's nothing else, you know, having, having a degree of understanding of the origins of, of morality and, and the emergence of morality um, sheds a bit of light. You know, I mean, like you had mentioned, it's, it's not like they're a complete, you know, it's, it's not a Yahtzee game. It's not like, well, you know, everybody's born and then, yeah, like random values emerge. Um, but at That's the same, right. but at the same time, there is a certain degree of arbitrariness uh, in terms of what our brains immediately value versus what they don't. Uh, what we what we ultimately care about, sort of whether we want to care about it or not, like what we care about and 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 what we don't. Um, and, and that hopefully having some kind of grounding of of where our our instincts and impetus is and how that was placed into us might inform 
how we treat and manage ourselves, maybe how we even govern ourselves. And I think that that's probably what's been happening since, as you had mentioned, social institutions emerged, you know, however many, you know, five, five figures of years ago, you know, 10,000, whatever the case, the case may be. So I see that being sort of insightful there and, and, and hopefully, um, well, I think it, it, it makes one a little bit humble. I mean, yeah. one of the things that I have often found in academic life, especially in, in philosophy departments, is the kind <laughs> of lack of humility. That is, the idea that humans alone have this capacity, and it's the capacity to reason, and that once we have sussed out this all-important rule, then we just follow it and, and everything will be fine. Yeah, think, uh, yeah. You know, it isn't like that. It, you know, it, no. interestingly, it's not like that in the physical world either. That is, I managed to get around the physical world pretty well. Yeah, you did pretty good. Do I have much in the way of rules? Well, I know not to push on a rope. Uh, yeah. And I know fires are hot and so forth. But, but these are not exactly rules. And so I think our social life as well as our life in the physical causal world is all about reasoning by analogy, sorting it out. Um, and, and of course, we acquire very strong feelings about appropriateness, we do. both in the physical world and in the social world, because the reward system is involved. Trial and error means, you know, when it goes well, you get a, a, a shot of the opioids. When it doesn't yeah. go well, uh, you you get the reverse. And, and that's true in the physical world. You change a tire in the wrong way and your car, you know, slumps down, uh, <laughs> then, then it's painful. You, yep. you have this uh, shot of, of cortisol, and yep. cortisol is a stress hormone and, hormone and it makes you feel rotten. So it's curious. I, I think, well, you know, you had mentioned if in philosophy partners, and it's, it's very funny to me how philosophers always sort of speak in jest of philosophy departments. I almost find it sort of endearing in some way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, 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 you know, I think we, don't we all kind of grasp for what those ultimate underpinnings would be, and wouldn't that really just help us sleep at night? But also, isn't that just so silly, and aren't our brains actually really sort of so small and arbitrary in some ways, not that we can't appreciate them, um, as to think that, that we can ever really touch on those ground rules? I forget the philosopher who had mentioned it, and I, I, I would, uh, I'd have to, to get myself in another Google hunt here, but there's a philosopher that had, had uh, French fell, I believe, who said that uh, the good, like nature, um, you know, will, will have to be sort of coaxed out and, and understood and found in context, um, just, just as sort of physics. And you had mentioned physics, we haven't gotten to the, we haven't, we haven't gotten to the very bedrock where that becomes, you know, two plus two either, you know, it turns out it ain't that simple, but, but that ultimately, you know, our, our, our moral understanding shucks. I mean, there will have to, I'm a deep, deep believer that there will, that the future, particularly future ethical considerations sort of even beyond our present societies will require, as we have throughout history, but probably at a faster pace, um, a, a, a fluidity and an ability to be vigilant about how morality could and should uh, apply and, 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 and an ability to kind of break from, you know, the, the, the we could call them dogmatic, we could call them sort of secure comprehensions and understandings of the world um, in, in any concrete dictates, because I think, 
you know, just as, as you know, hunter-gatherers to agriculture to modern society, there's been some, some shifts and, you know, thoughts about infan uh -huh. infanticide and, and uh, you know, marriage and, and, you know, Lord knows everything else uh, have, have certainly had to shift. By golly, um, shouldn't we understand that that's kind of the way of the world and that, that things are gray yeah. and, and can we be strong enough to deal with that? I, I could go on and on about that all day, Patricia. I'm just wary of our own yeah. time. I, I, no, I, I think, I think that that's, that's very true. I mean, the relationships between uh, bonded males and females in pre-agricultural times were very different from how they are uh, now or how they were, let's say, 50 or 100 or 500 years ago sure. and yet people do have this tendency to think oh it's always been this way no um, it hasn't and, yeah and so so i i agree that i think we do have to be very vigilant and 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 cognizant of the fact that when ecological pressures including those that come from the social world when they change Sometimes we may want to go with the change. Sometimes, you know, you may think about it and think, you know, I, I don't think we do want to go with that change. So it kind of depends, and there's bound to be disagreements. Oh, there are. But what we shouldn't assume is that we ourselves are the only ones who have the true moral knowledge and the other ones who with whom we disagree are just bozos. And, and isn't that isn't that the normal human tendency? I'm reading a, a book. Well, I, I'm afraid it is, and I'm sure I have. No, oh, we all we're all guilty. I mean, because it's it's so so darn automatic and and so unthinking. But luckily, uh, all that cortex you talked about helps us sort of overcome ourselves from time to time. And and uh, I think humans have done you know done in the past, and hopefully we'll be able to do in the future. Patricia, because I'm enjoying this talk so much, I want to ask one more question, and I, I, we can make it as, as brief as we need to, um, but I'm very much fascinated. As a neurophilosopher, I think technically the first with, with such a title has been on Tech Emergence. I'm interested in your thoughts here. You know, a lot of our conversations with you know, philosophers uh, in, in the, the future of humanity kind of space, folks like Nick Bostrom and, and others, um, kind of end up leaning into the domain of, of enhancement. And, you know, we're, we're speaking now about the origins of, of morality and, and s the somewhat arbitrary origins of morality, kind of like the arbitrary origins of, you know, eyebrows or, or thumbs or something like that. Um, and, and, uh, and we're speaking of them on kind of the same level, meaning, you know, there aren't any that are inherently concrete. By golly, maybe they're not the best. Um, you know, it, it's and, and, and shucks, don't they really get us into trouble a lot of the time? Um, do you foresee, you know, as, as uh, certainly in being involved in the neuroscience world, you're familiar with deep brain stimulation and optogenetics and uh, brain-computer interface and, and all the various pharmacological treatments that are that are sort of being developed in personalized medicine. Um, do, do you foresee, you know, I know there's a lot of talk around, you know, if we can f help to edit memory con concerns with folks who have Alzheimer's, maybe we can enhance memory, but there's also talk about sort of moral enhancement if we're going to move forward as the same team on this you know spaceship earth and kind of get along well enough to not kill each other before we either kind of leave the planet or, or you know figure out a way to get along um you know would that maybe require some degree of alteration um you know to our to our morality and, and would would that ever be sort of justified or even reasonably possible in even the next three decades or so, in, in your personal opinion? This is a little bit open-ended and white canvas, but I couldn't help myself but ask. No, I, what, one is, I think, bound to think about those things. Um, and perhaps because I'm coming out of neuroscience, where I'm 
often running up against how much we don't know, oh, yeah. for example, about the reward system and the reward system that allows us to learn the moral conventions and practices and so forth. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of tongue-tied when it comes to envisaging the future. And, you know, Francis Crick and I used to talk about these sorts of things a lot um, before he died. And mm. I was at that time working on a book called 10 Unsolved Problems in Neuroscience. And he said, look, you know, I think the way things are in neuroscience, you really can't see past about a five-year time horizon. And that predicting anything beyond about five years, you know, you're just, you're just making stuff up. And why should anybody care? And, uh, but he said, you know, keep it within about five years and then you'll be reasonable. And, 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 you know, it is of course tempting to, to want to speculate in a really very grand way. Oh yeah. And and I Um, I wouldn't ask you to pull out the crystal ball. I don't want to wreck your, (laughs) I'm not not trying to wreck your like scientific credibility. I'm just talking open-ended with you, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, I really don't know what to say. And and partly too, I think it's because there are many different ways of being morally decent. Yeah. And, and so, but the thing that we do know that is critically important for producing well socialized humans, humans that have a chance at being morally wise, is that they need love and comfort and nurturing when they're developing that the developing brain is acutely sensitive to be, to neglect, to punishment, to isolation, oh, and yes. so forth. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising that we have children grow up to be adults who are mean-spirited, selfish, unable to predict, can't make a compromise, or totally narcissistic, and so forth. Now, that's always going to happen anyway, to some small degree, just given the nature of brain variability. But we do know what we need to know in order, by and large, to produce good human beings. And that is they need to be loved and cared for, they need stability, and they need food. And that's not very complicated. No, yeah, luckily that didn't have to take us to the further reaches of neuroscience. I think that, that, that's a, a tangible a tangible takeaway in terms of what we do know to hopefully kind of, you know, and, and, and I, some of that being obviously, you know, common sense in, in today's day and age, although, hope you know, maybe not for everybody, unfortunately. But, but I think uh, if nothing else, it sounds like there are some tried and true neuroscience and psychology lessons that you know, might at least proliferate moral decency into the world as, as good of a shot as we can for all the parents, teachers, and guardians out there uh, who are kind of raising the next generation of, of uh, you know, Earth's inhabitants. That's right. And I think many, many people do understand that and do live by that. But for complicated social and economic reasons, um, it doesn't always happen. And, and it, it, isn't, it isn't that there is a particular social class that is more prone to it necessarily than another. Yeah. But, but, there, but there are clear instances where a disaster and a catastrophe could be prevented. Uh, had the children had the love and support and kindness and sweetness and so forth um, that they needed, and and hopefully we'll only see more and more of that in in the future as as you know if, if Pinker is is on the right tip and I think he is 
you know, he is actually. Yeah, you know, I, I do. Yeah, it's, I, I do as well. I'm, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a relatively firm believer. I mean, I'm not a hard academic in all the areas that he hones in on, but, but I, uh, I am, and I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that our, our capacity for empathy, uh, hopefully, our general quality of life, and, 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 uh, you know, that, that initial nurturing environment for a greater and greater percentage of living, mm-hmm. breathing humans will hopefully continue to improve, and, and maybe that'll help with our own collaboration and trying to figure out all this stuff that you and I couldn't figure out in 25 minutes. Okay, that's <laughs> wonderful. Patricia, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a ton for being here on the podcast, Patricia. Thank you. Okay, bye. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, and make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.